good morning, afternoon, or evening, whenever you're listening to us. This is Replacement Level Morality. My name is Joseph. My name's Andrew. Andrew, you have hit me with a topic this evening I know nothing about, and I'm quite excited to hear you explain it, and then that way I can kind of react to it as a novice, which I'm 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 just Twitter pated at the at the at the prospect. So avail me of your wisdom, sir. So this is a system of thinking that I have to give credit to Arnold Kling for. I came up with this model of thinking about politics, which is the three languages of politics. And I'm curious to get your thoughts on it and talk through its implications. So the three languages are liberal. I don't like that word. I think the leftist progressives are stopping. Uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll say progressive, which is thinking about the world in terms of oppressor oppressed. The libertarians thinking about the words, the world in terms of liberty or coercion and the conservatives who think about the world as order versus chaos. Okay, that is interesting. And that's why there's so much talking past each other in politics is because they aren't speaking the same language for the most part. And I, and I was trying to take this a step deeper. There is, in math, uh, the idea of a, a fundamental theorem of X. So the fundamental theorem of calculus is derivative is the inverse of an integral. There's a fundamental theorem of algebra, but I forgot what it is. Basically, this defines an area of study. And I've come up with a fundamental theorem of conservatism, or my attempt at it. Uh, and I'd, I'd like to get your thoughts. Hit me. Because I certainly of these three schools of thought, I would consider myself a conservative. I definitely look at the world as order versus chaos. So I feel like I can actually judge this. So to my mind, the fundamental theorem of conservatism is that even if any list of proposed changes that one would, that a reformer would make to a society were all positive changes, making them all, making them all at once would be a net negative. I would amend that to say that it is that a conservative would be recalcitrant to adopt that list of entirely positive changes because they would consider the externalities that would come with, well, what happens when you make that change and the system reacts in a fashion that you did not expect and creates disorder as a consequence and maybe makes the change not as positive as you think. Exactly. So so an example is we, for the most part, consign manual labor for a class of people to entirely optional and then all gain a bunch of weight all at once. Like, oh, shoot, actually, it was important to be exercising every day. And a slowly evolving society can adapt to those changes Whereas if you just instantly transform everything, you, you'll never know what change you make broke something so that you can undo it or work to improve it. I completely agree. I mean, I've often heard conservatism as 
not necessarily being right wing, but wanting to preserve the status quo, preserve the institutions to conserve them, if right. you will. We're all, we're and, all good and, here. And I think that that, uh, that's that sense of caution of change is not necessarily bad or wrong. It just has to be measured and careful in a system that already functions because your potential fail state is so severe. And like you can go from a functional society to a non-functional society if you make the wrong choice. So let's make our choices gradually so that there can be a period of adjustment and we can ensure we're continuing to evolve correctly. Conservatives are not anti-progress, I guess is... I, the number one thing I would want to say is we're, we're all actually very pro progress. We're just wanting to ensure we're not putting the cart before the horse. And in my personal evolution, that sentiment has the result of, let me start over. <clears throat> and in my personal political evolution, there's a conservative, sense about my libertarianism that I think a lot of people could learn from where yes I think a lot of things would like would be better off different but from a kind of scientific method standpoint it's important to go slowly because we we try to we try to incorporate a historical perspective here the vast majority of societies are abject failures by our current standard. Absolutely. Even the ones present. Yes. You know, like even the ones that are our peer civilizations right now are failures. There are, there are many more fail states. So if you're just throwing darts and saying, I think this would be good. You're much more likely to screw things up. So, so, Move slowly and break few things. I think that's part of your, the, the, the realist part of your soul, the, the part of your, your spirit that I've attempted to nurture over the years, Andrew, that you understand human nature and it tempers your libertarian idealism appropriately. If I, if I might be so bold as to categorize your, your political position is that it's li it's libertarianism with a a realistic understanding of how the world and people work and that there has to be certain things that you would prefer not be necessary that are in fact are quite necessary that would otherwise be an anathema to a a died in the wool libertarian it's it's a directional libertarianism it's uh, on every relevant margin i would prefer to move in the direction of less government. But I just don't care to argue with the end caps over whether we should have roads or not, because we should, we should have roads. We should have armies. I think of Michael Malice, who's someone I actually like a lot. Same. I think Michael, Michael Malice is one of the most interesting conservative commentators that I see out there in that he has a real perspective and he is extremely good at articulating it. He has a lived experience that is unique as a, you know, someone from the Soviet union and he has a real positive joy about being an American that comes from that. But he's also 
and an anarchist and says nonsense like that, you know, we shouldn't have armies. The very first thing that happened in the Chaz chop, what was that in 2020? A man showed up with AK-47s and declared himself the law. <laughs> it's literally the first thing that happened when there was a void of 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 order and a void of power. Is someone stepped in with weapons and declared themselves that that force. That is what always ha- will happen amongst human beings, and it is best to disorganize in the fashion to suit the civilization in question and be answerable to it rather than it be filled by the next most powerful man with means, motive, and opportunity. Yeah, and Chaz is a bit too generous because it's, you know, it's inside this broader context of a developed civilization. But the example that really that really caused some reflection for me was Liberia. They There was no state. They just dropped a bunch of former slaves there and very quickly they were just murdering each other. And there was a de facto state. It was the person with the most guns and the most people following them. And child soldiers and awfulness very quickly ensued. So given the choice between that, which living, breathing anarchy, not Somalia, that's a bit of a straw man, but just dumping a bunch of people in Liberia with no structure. And, you know, it had a, plenty of problems. But in 1789, a bunch of lawyers came out and said, here are some ideas for making government at least a little bit accountable to the people. Just a little bit. And just that little bit of accountability has brought us so far. Mm -hmm. And one of my favorite uh, John Olivers from back when he was playable was... (laughs) back that's a clear magic reference back when back when you could play tarmogoyf and and feel good about it was when john oliver was watchable got it i'm there with you was about nuclear uh nuclear silo maintenance and there's all this like 80s technology that's terrible and uh all this disrepair and stuff that hasn't happened and it's not for lack of money the u.s the u.s defense budget is very large you can you have a couple hundred people that care. They all might write their senator who might get a couple hundred letters and say, okay, I'll, I care enough about this to pressure some general. But already we've diffused through layers the theoretical accountability. It's not that good. It's a little bit of accountability, but it's enough. It, it's much more than the warlord of Chaz who just does whatever he feels like. It's, it's funny to me that the American style of governance is so effective to manage America and yet would be a disaster if other nations attempted to adopt it. And we've never recommended that they do. Oh, like the Westminster system is much better. (laughs) If you're talking about organizing a, a, a representative democracy, right? Like that, that allows for much more participation in the system. It allows for uh, more collaboration within the legislative process and the appointment of leadership. Um, It's more intricate on an electoral level, but actually easier to deal with on an implementation level of the actual government. So the Westminster system is actually 
really the one you should suggest to your would-be developing nation that wants to, you know, graduate into being a democracy. And yet the American system is anarchic federal uh, nonsense that we have consigned ourselves to for eternity tends to actually produce a much better result than you would anticipate. And it's like, and it's the multiple levels of accountability from the very smallest scale, local levels all the way to the top. Some of that I think is because human instincts about governance are actually very bad. So the American system's strong preference for inertia given how liberty-friendly the founding era was, that got preserved for a very long time, long after the political instincts of the people would have repealed it if they could. You see the same thing with the Second Amendment. Our, our, uh, dare I say, our second best episode, the the armed man is governed, not ruled. there, There have been times where there was political will to repeal the Second Amendment. If it was a 51%, if it was a Westminster style system. Yeah, it's true. But not in our system. And that's good. It's And it should be that way. It should be hard to change these first principles, governing principles, organizing principles, because you need to have that level of accepted um, basis by which you're organizing your society when you don't have a um, joint ethnicity to organize around instead. Right. Mm-hmm. Like America is a creedal nation and that's given us uh, incredible benefits through the years. We, we have this vast capability of assimilating people from other places and turning them into Americans because Americans isn't a skin color, a religion, or a um, particular form of cultural uh, food. Uh, It is a set of ideals and principles that you can in fact adopt as part of your identity while uh, uh, retaining another piece of yourself. And in fact, that that is encouraged because every American cultural output is a fusion of different cultural inputs from other places, quite famously. That's great. That's like made us the most powerful nation on this planet because we just, we literally can just take the breast and the brightest from every place and say, Hey kids, you want to make a lot of fucking money and live in a place where you can say whatever you want and kind of do whatever you want and not have to worry about any of these oppressive systems you're presently existing in. And they're like, yeah, that sounds awesome. And we're like, come on in boys. <laughs> like doors open. Come join us. You know how many Vietnamese are here? A lot, <laughs> a lot. We lost the war, but we still won. Yeah, we just took the best ones and said, see ya. <laughs> you can leave the rest there. It's like with the Koreans too, right? Like this was uh, the after the Korean War, you had the a mass immigration of of uh, Koreans that fought with U.S. troops and decided like, America sounds great. Let's go. And um, that was a big part of the uh, L.A. riots was the sort of the the rise of the Korean American becoming a distinct sort of cultural identity because they all were all ex soldiers. They got on the rooftops with their M threes. I didn't realize that they were, they were mostly from North Korea. No, 
Oh, okay. they're from South Korea, but they're like, yeah, but that was also a hellhole. I would prefer to go to America. <laughs> right, right, that was before South Korea was like a, a normal democracy with, you know, a functioning state. Yeah, this is before they had you know hypertext Seoul and Busan and all that. Like before they became one of the leading you know uh, technological innovators of East Asia. You know, they were a lot of farmland and not a lot of economic opportunities. So a lot of them decided to avail themselves of this new connection they had to the West and and availed themselves of their economic opportunity here. And then you know they got on their rooftops and <laughs> fought to preserve their convenience stores during the LA riots, literally. <laughs> And it was it, might, it may be the most American thing that has happened ever. Indeed. It was truly where they became Korean <laughs> Americans. <laughs> like, oh, you got guns and defended your property? You've learned. <laughs> Good job. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome to the family, my friends. It is fun to uh to see the Hispanic uh populations that have been here for several generations. Uh, go through this process as well of like you've got multi-generational hispanic families in the southwest that are the most based red-pilled republican people you have ever met because you know what they are working class (laughs) like they have adopted the 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 ways of the people around them right like they've assimilated into the working class American ethos entirely while preserving a distinct cultural identity as, you know, as descendants of, of, of Mexican or Central American or South American immigrants. But now that's not, I'm El Salvadorian. I'm, I'm Mexican. I'm Guatemalan. I'm Venezuelan. It's I'm Hispanic. I'm an Hispanic American, you know, cause I'm, my family's been here for like four generations, you know? Yeah. Like that group is an interesting thing that has really started to come along in the last like five or six years because, you know, now, now it's like a circumstance where their grandparents were born here, you know, like there's no sort of direct connection to the immigrant that brought the family line anymore. Yeah. That, that's pretty consistent throughout immigrant groups. Actually, it's like the third generation is almost entirely assimilated. Yeah, you saw that with white immigration, right? Italians and Irish, Germans, uh, the Polish, particularly in Chicago, they had these distinct ethnic identities for about 60 to 80 years. And then what happened? Well, their third generation rolled around and they're just like everyone else now, right? And it's like your your Irish or Italianness is sort of uh, an auxiliary part of your being, but certainly no longer the primary part of it. Now you're from the Bronx and the Bronx is carries the cultural identity. Not I'm Italian, you know, do you have similar deep thoughts on the other two? No. And and that's kind of what I wanted to talk about, but I enjoyed that conversation as well. But I I wish, I think if there was one thing I, I I could like inject into, I keep using him because I actually like a lot of Matt Iglesias ideas. He's like a, thoughtful ish. And then it just goes and does something really dumb. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if I could like inject something into like the party of competent governance and heavy air quotes, it would be that idea of, of just chill, have some appreciation for how many wrong turns have been avoided. 
And it's more important to avoid wrong turns than to make right turns. It is interesting to consider the axis at which progressivism looks in the universe, because I don't think you could put it better than oppressor versus oppressed. That really is the lens through which you really can see the matrix code on progressive ideology. That's the only language they speak. And it's so bankrupt. It is. Like, it, it is useful explicitly when talking about like the very small percentage of people in the U S that are legitimately sex trafficked everywhere else. I happen to like, there's pretty reasonable studies that like you get 95% of the hits. If you show identical resumes, one's a black name and one's a not obviously black name. That is not oppression. That is a real like problem that we, we can take a look at and make, take steps to address. It is not oppression. It, You're absolutely right. Like a, if you think that's oppression, you have no concept of what oppression looks like. I, the, the phrase wage slave sets me off. <laughs> it does to me too. Like, yes, yes. You mean the thing that human beings have been doing for entirety of our existence working for sustenance? Yes. That is a thing we do. I could leave my job tomorrow and it would have very nasty repercussions. Like I, I probably wouldn't be able to make the, well, my next one's fine, but like three mortgage payments down the line, I'm in, I'm in real trouble. Right. But there's nobody with chains and a whip who will stop me from walking off my job. Those are not the same thing. As you said, it is a bankrupt ideology that can only come from a group of people so intensely privileged that they consider having to do something they don't want to do to be oppression. I am mildly inconvenienced. This is oppression. This isn't quite exactly the way it should be in the ideal. It is oppression. Uh, I am being compelled by the necessity of my existence to exchange labor for goods and services. That is oppression. Like, Lord have mercy. Like, this is were oppression. Okay. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> this is not oppression. Okay. Jim Crow was oppression. All right. Slavery was oppression. This is, this is, this is not even oppression's third cousin twice removed. It is good at an abstract level to have people who are hypersensitive about exploitation and who is being taken advantage of. It's not necessarily bad that that exists. It just, when the world is as comparatively good compared to what it could be, the up to 11 screaming hysteria is no longer useful. It becomes more dangerous than beneficial that you might accidentally burn it all down and there we go to my obsession with burn it all down movements. Um, We've covered that. It's good. That becomes more salient than like you find a handful of exploited or oppressed people and f break their chains. There just aren't that many anymore. We're very rich. Like you, not you, in this nation. You want there's plenty of oppression in other places. Exactly. Uh, and if you wish to speak to that oppression and point it out and demonstrate that it is in fact oppression. I can at least 
get behind that. You're like, you want to run B roll of cobalt mining in the Congo and tell me that's oppression. I'll be like, that sure shit is <laughs> you nailed it. Got it. <laughs> you did it. Your um, campaign to end female genital, genital mutilation in Africa. I'm on board. <laughs> yeah. But let's, let's train that fire someplace where it should be. And speaking of training fire where it should be, I would like to turn my particular rhetorical guns towards a, semi-drama topic which usually isn't our bag but i have found it so endlessly fascinating as a part of a ecosystem of media that i i engage with rather consistently uh that i i want to talk about it with you and that is the person known as eliza blue have you heard of this person i have so let, let's start with uh what I know, as we do with some of the more intense drama episodes where I'm like vaguely familiar, but when you, when you needed me to give you the deep cut 4chan slash Kiwi Farms lore on Nick Fuentes. I didn't need that. You 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 chose that for me. True. <laughs> that was oppression. <laughs> I oppressed you with that knowledge. Yes. Stop it down your throat. So Eliza Blue, I mostly know her because uh, Siraj Hashmi will would uh, before this all happened occasionally retweet her, and what I knew was like she's some activist about human trafficking, and uh, as a big reader of Reason magazine, just like very good evidence that for every actual instance of human trafficking there are dozens of false alarms where a child with or a family with an adopted child is stopped at an airport and uh asked a bunch of investigations because their skin colors don't match and it's it's awful um, but like actual human trafficking is obviously horrific it is quite rare in the united states uh, but if someone who especially if you have been human trafficked i understand you're not necessarily going to live by the statistics you're just saying my life's work is ending this so i'm like mostly indifferent to her on that level of i understand why you're doing this not my beat whatever you you do you and then something happens uh she is <laughs> I'll, I'll fill that in don't worry she is exposed as uh quite the grifter uh she is uh, apparently she flashed a whole lot of her body parts at various cameras uh, completely voluntarily as opposed to her story, which was trafficked. And I don't actually know that, so I shouldn't say that because that's kind of a severe accusation. But I have a feeling that you're about to substantiate my accusation. With I am going to substantiate your accusation with, <laughs> with, with facts. Don't worry. With, with some cold details. With some details. No, yeah. I, I Question before I begin. Did Siraj, has Siraj said anything about this? Because I know he had her on his show at one point. Has he, has he just been like, mm. <laughs> I don't think he said anything. Shit. I haven't seen anything like about this topic. He, even like when they would interact on Twitter, it was just like the back and forth that people with Siraj do where they're like insulting him and he retweets it because he thinks it's funny. But, and then it, there were some more, uh, sober retweets of like her fundraising for human trafficking victims where he's like taking it seriously. 
which is rare for him. So Eliza Blue is someone that kind of popped on to the right wing media ecosystem radar back in 2020, right around the pandemic era is kind of when she kind of blew up on Twitter to the the people that I watch. Because I remember seeing her for the first time from Siraj, actually, which makes a lot of sense when you think that Siraj and the Habibi Bros is kind of like an is a pretty entry point show, you know, for a lot of this ecosystem. Mm-hmm. They're they're not super popular, but they have just enough credibility that like if you were on that show, that can lead you to being on other things. And she had this whole story i was sex trafficked i am a sex traffics trafficking survivor i'm an advocate for other people who have been sex trafficked and i'm here to talk about all the ways in which this happens on social media social media is used as its platform to do so and so on and she seemed suspect to me from the beginning because she was incredibly uh her story was very erratic from the beginning in terms of when she was asked about herself, she would be very vague. And what she was talking about was familiar to me because what she was doing was equating the idea of people involved in prostitution are sex trafficked, even if they're engaging in it in a voluntary fashion, but she wasn't outright saying it. And I was aware that that is the position she was taking because I happen to be adjacent to a ministry group here in my hometown where they do a lot of focus on trying to help, frankly, prostitutes stop being prostitutes and and remove themselves from that life and find Jesus. And it's all they do great work. I I don't I don't even going to mention their name because I don't want to bring them into this discussion, but they're great. And I I, they talk about in the same way. Right. I'm like, that's odd. That's that's something I've only heard from them. And so I I did something really special, Andrew, back in 2020. I Googled her, which apparently, and this is my real point, nobody fucking else did. (laughs) Okay? That's what's really astonishing to me is I'm like, who is this woman? And I Googled her, and it took like 25 seconds to start finding other names associated with her. And then you Google those names, and then you start going down rabbit holes, and you're like, Oh no. The story goes from she was a, a victim that was sex trafficked at a young age and hooked on drugs and forced to do this and that to, and I kid you not, someone, she's 41, she's older than me. Someone that 20 years ago was a super groupie for My Chemical Romance to the degree that she actually managed to start dating and then get engaged to their lead singer, Gerard way and become at the time via the sort of MySpace live journal web 1.0 social media that existed internet famous for being the Yoko Ono of my chemical romance. Eventually that relationship ended, but she was addicted to being famous. So she tried to make it in LA as a model but being a model in LA when you're uh, not exactly, you know, wafer thin, you know, European, which is what a lot of models are, is hard. Uh, so you wind up doing a lot of 
prostitution on the side, high level escort stuff, but that's what you're doing to pay the bills. And now we're, now we're just haggling over price. <laughs> and that, you know, she's coming in and out of her. She's from a rich family in Illinois that have a, a farmland. So she's like, goes back to LA and then goes back to the farm and then tries to make it in LA again. She does that for like a decade and eventually gives up on all of that of which again, back two years ago, I found all this stuff very easily Googling her name. Cause she had this huge footprint of all of these things she did back when she was involved in this, my chemical romance where she was just another fucking pick me scene, bitch seen a million of them. Uh, all the way through this this modeling period, she had multiple Instagrams. She was on these on these uh, podcasts. She was trying to to make it in basically this very niche urban model sort of world. That whole era of her existence, and then all the way to suddenly breaking out as a sex trafficking advocate after a brief stint as a Yang Gang person. Wow. Yeah. Uh, that 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 was the only one that was unexpected. Of oh, the Yang Gang, right? Oh, I got the Yang Gang piece was amazing. What she did is right, right as Yang was running in Iowa, because it was right next door to where she lived in Illinois. She went and basically found this uh, this nineteen year old virgin that worked for the Yang uh, campaign that was like doing a lot of like podcasting and social media stuff, and started dating that guy <laughs> to like lift her own presence and be on shows and like have more Twitter followers from the Yang gang people. And then as soon as Yang dropped out, she jumped right on the sex trafficking thing. The struggling model in LA who does escorting, like, okay, this all completely checks out. I have a total mental model of who this person is. Yep. And then you just went, Oh, and she was also involved with Andrew Yang's campaign. I'm like, I'm sorry. What? (laughs) Very opportunistically based on geographic location. And the fact that, you know, she was 40. If she wants to be famous, there's going to be one way to do that. Politics. Hollywood for ugly people. And so that's what she did. And as I mentioned, all I did was fucking Google her, Andrew. Right? I'm sitting here in my desk. I'm like, who is this? Oh, what the fuck? Right? And so I bring this topic up not to talk about Eliza Blue necessarily. The drama is funny. It's all over Twitter. There's a great Kiwi Tharms thread. If you really want to know, look it up. I encourage it. It's a lot of lot of data, a lot of interesting data. What's far more interesting is how far she got with her grift and how somehow she got on all kinds of people's shows. She was on Malice's show. She did a uh, she did a hit on Ben Shapiro. Uh, she did a hit on essentially like every figure in the right wing ecosystem. And somehow no one Googled this woman before you decided to have her on as an expert about sex trafficking. So, so what's, what was that like? Like, did you listen to her Shapiro episode? What, what's her pitch besides, Hey, sex trafficking is bad. She spins a good yarn about the good, the use of social media to market sexual activities. And this is like what's strange about her is that she's right now getting torched as a grifter because the story she concocted for herself was a total fabrication. But the truth, which is what I conveyed to you, could have worked for her if she had just been honest about it from the beginning to say, yeah, I was a I was a, a prostitute and I regret it and I felt used 
and I do think this is sex trafficking and it should come to an end. And this is how something like a world star hip hop video is essentially a, a essentially an advertisement for prostitution. World star. That's the thing you shout before you do something stupid. Did I did I cause you pain? Did you, did you feel old? When I like no, barely I mean, know that what is, World Star is. I mean, well, no. I mean, it's a cultural thing, not an age thing. World Star. Um, like that. That's it's been around for a while, but like World Star hip hop's very important if you're a, a urban youth. Okay, <laughs> like it's something you know, not based on your age. It's something you know based on your your skin color and economic strata. You know what I mean? Okay. Eliza blue could have told her actual story and it would have suited her desire to talk about those things and become famous as an advocate against some of the choices that she made. But I imagine those details were things she would prefer not be known and chose to lie in thinking that no one would ever find out, which only makes sense in a universe where you don't have a paper trail that's the size of an FBI file that is easily searchable by any Tom, Dick, or Harry that has access to the Google box. Or Joseph, perhaps. Or even me. And what I don't understand is how these major right-wing media figures booked guests like this and just didn't... Who is this woman? Eliza Blue. Huh. Looks like she's gone by a few different names. Eliza knows. Oh shit. What's that? Eliza cuts. Uh cancel that booking. Like <laughs> it just how did that happen? I don't get it. I don't understand it. Is there is it that right-wingers are just so desperate for a female voice that they'll take anything and they just didn't want to know? I, I ask you. I ask you because I am looking for I'm looking for some information. Do you happen to know how old Siraj is? He's got to be in his 30s, at least, because 9/11 was a big deal to him. It was a big deal to everyone. What like? But he was like a person <laughs> when 9/11 happened. You know what I mean? Okay, so probably older than his 30s then. I mean, I was uh, 18, so he could have been like 14 or 13. Like it was when he was like a person. Okay. Oh, I thought you meant like a figure in media. No, but you were old enough to like conceptualize of the gravity of the circumstance, especially okay. as a Muslim. When you wrote about it on the Washington Times, the first time I ever heard of him. People who didn't grow up with Google, their first instinct when they learned about a thing is not necessarily to Google it. That's the only thing I have. And it's a stretch, but like, that's all I got because it, it's a tough one. Why? Why would they not just... Who is she? Yeah. <laughs> like, that's what I don't get. Maybe I, I, just, you know, familiarity breeds contempt. You book your first hundred guests on your show. You like find out who they are by your thousandth or your 300th. You're just like, yeah, they sent me this message. That seems like an interesting thing to talk about. My Let's producer saw said they were on this person's show and this person's show. We'll do 10 minutes, you know, and let's let's just go, right? 
Yeah. That has to be it. And it's like, well, they were on this person's show. So clearly, you know, it got something worth hearing. I, I, it feels like it has to be just this familiarity breeds content because otherwise I don't understand how anyone would possibly have put her on and not seen like, oh, this, this is going to be a, this appearance will be a liability when this inevitably goes, goes tits up. And it did because what happened? Elon Musk bought Twitter and needed an easy W and Eliza Blue's out there in the streets talking about how Twitter is being used to uh, sex traffic minors and using hashtags and photographs or some esoterica that frankly I chose not to understand because I find the idea of child sex trafficking repellent. And because he wanted the easy dub, he elevated her and talked to her and made her suddenly immediately to the, to the Musk cult, this figure of, of wisdom and cultural expertise when it comes to fighting sex trafficking, which now of course Elon Musk is amazing at. And that rose her stature such that inevitably, finally, some people decided to investigate her. And you know who the first person was that actually, like, brought to, like, wider public attention that her background didn't make any sense? Katie Herzog. That that tracks. Katie Herzog was trying to interview her and wanted merely to ask her about how to approach asking her about her background. And she flipped out. And she recorded the whole conversation and then Eliza Blue lied about the conversation. So she's like, here's the actual tape because I'm an old journalist. <laughs> and I record everything. <laughs> Get wrecked. <laughs> and she did a, sh- she, she then went to all, it was funny as shit. She went to all the places that I went two years ago. She went to the My Chemical Romance subreddit to ask My Chemical Romance fans about her. And they're like, yeah, she sucked. She was the fucking uh yoko ono of our fandom she wrote like weird live journal self-insert fan fiction about her dating gerard way until she literally did okay like, wait, hold on hold on, <clears throat> hold on what does that mean the yoko ono of the fan dub of the fan are you fucking with me right now no i'm not i like Fuck. have heard the name yoko ono before i'm pretty sure she's a singer do you know the, who the beatles are yes i know <laughs> who the beatles are are you familiar with the legend of how the Beatles ceased to be a band? No, I, I thought I thought they got I thought they died. No, they were all very much alive, and they were at their creative peak. And John Lennon broke up with his first wife, and he wound up meeting an avant-garde artist by the name of Yoko Ono, who was very experimental and weird and hippie and connected with her and started bringing her around. And she was like poison to the whole group. And, you know, she wanted him, he he wanted her around things and in things all the time. And the other guys didn't like it. And it classic, you know, uh, bros before hoes moment. (laughs) The bros were not before the hoes and therefore the bros broke up. And so Yoko Ono is the, is the person who broke up the greatest band who ever existed when they were at their creative peaks. And you never got to experience a a version of the Beatles that were, you know, moving into the seventies and even the eighties because of her. 
and you only got a taste of what that could have been like because all of those guys didn't end up having solo careers and like uh, Paul McCarthy and wings like they did bangers. John uh, Lennon's solo career had bangers. Even George Harrison's solo career had bangers. And it's like, man, what could have been if the Yoko Ono hadn't broken them up? Paul McCartney and the wings did the theme song to live and let die. I'm so glad you know something. I know many things. <laughs> just, you don't know who Yoko Ono is. Just not things about pop culture, especially pop culture from many decades before I was born. I'm very hit or miss at Trivia Night. I always need I always need help in like sports and pop culture topics. I can tell. <laughs> but Herzog went to My Chemical Romance subreddit. She, you know, tracked out and found all the Instagram stuff that was all just out there, just public. And did one of the blocked and reported episodes. It was one of the premium ones of like, yeah, I started looking into this and I had to give up because it's just like the biggest rap that don't trust her. <laughs> like I don't have time and I'm not being paid. So I am not going any further on this, but here's what I found out in like a day. <laughs> so good luck everybody. And uh, not long after she put all that out into the universe, a lot of other folks were like, yeah, I don't know if you've noticed, but she's, she's, she's that, she's that kind of person. So I just didn't know that the conservative media ecosystem could be that easily fooled. I suppose I was surprised by that. I didn't know that they were going to just get got by a low level, low effort grift that was be able to be slain by one PA that decided to look up who the fuck they were booking. And like, no one did. I don't get it. I don't understand it. Media conservative media, get, get good, right? Like get out of amateur hour. I don't know how else to describe it. Like you want to replace legacy media. You want to take the next step, right? And I'm all there for it. I mean, we're making this show right now because we really enjoy interacting with this media ourselves. And we decided we enjoyed interacting with so much. We'd make our own, even though we know we're never going to get much in the way of listeners relative to this other stuff, but we're, we're actively fans of so many of these things. And that's how we primarily interact with a media system. And that we're not alone in that. And there's a hungry group that really wants them to re replace or at least rival establishment media. Well, guys, you can't fucking put Eliza blue on your fucking show. <laughs> if you're going to make that step, you got to get good. You got to, you've got to have credibility in what you're doing. You can't self immolate this bad. And when you do, you have to own it. And that's, that's also something I'm not really seeing is like a lot of these folks that platformed her are just not saying anything. That's why I asked if Shiraj had said something about her because I, she was, he was one of the first to platform her a couple of years ago. And now this is broken bad. Like people like Malice, people like Shapiro, people like Siraj. I don't see them talking about it. It's all the fucking drama people who are talking about it and bringing it up like the quartering or Chrissy Mayer or, or, you know, Tim pool or any bunch of those guys. But like the, the folks that you consider more legitimate political talkers, suddenly nothing. Take your L's boys, take your L's and talk to me about how you're not going to allow this to happen again. The daily wire is not yet the wall street journal. Yeah. And I think that's probably a good thing to remember sometimes.
they're very professional. They've got a real slick um, operation. I love all their shows. I love the stuff they're producing. But they, uh, but six years ago, they were a startup that were <laughs> making podcasts in Jeremy Boring's pool house. <laughs> you know, like they, they are, they are still fresh out of the fucking womb and um, they're going to make mistakes. And uh, I suppose that we should have some grace for that, but at the same time, they need to, they need to recognize them when they happen. All right. Well, thank you very much, everybody for listening to replacement level morality. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.